1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words, Life in a prison may well be compared to Advent. The door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in uh, World War II in Nazi Germany. And what's significant about those words is that he wrote them while he was in prison. He wrote and he waited. He waited waited to be released from prison. And waiting is one of the themes of Advent. Advent and waiting go hand in hand. And that's exactly what Bonhoeffer did. He waited, waited for the war to end and waited to be liberated, waited to see, he waited to see his fiancée, which he was allowed to see in prison for one hour once a month. Dietrich Bonhoeffer waited. And while he waited, he gave us a series of uh, devotions over this period of Advent. And while he waited, some of his friends and some of his students, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not only a pastor, but he was a seminary professor. While he waited, some of his students were killed in the war. And also while he waited, his family's home was bombed. He had little to do but pray and write and wait. Wait for the door to be opened from the outside. Advent. Waiting. And we're going to be spending some Sundays before Christmas on the theme of Advent. Uh, The word Advent literally means coming. And since the fourth century, our spiritual ancestors have taken time before Christmas Day through the reading of Scripture and through the lighting of candles to prepare to wait for the coming of Christ. And what's significant about Advent is that it speaks of three kinds of comings. There is a threefold coming to Advent. The first coming of Advent has to do with the coming of Christ in Bethlehem. We're most familiar with that kind of Advent. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, when Paul says, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. God appeared in a body. Then there's the second kind of Advent, a second dimension of Advent, and that is the coming of the king into our hearts. In this Advent, it is not we who wait on God, it is God who waits for us. He waits for us to open the door to let him in so that he might become the unchallenged authority in our lives. And so this season is a time to reflect on that, especially if maybe you've been here, you've been curious about who this creator God is, you've been curious about who Jesus is, and you've been coming here to this church community, exploring, thinking. Advent challenges us 
challenges us that Christianity is not just a series of religious activities where we come in a room like this and sing songs and hear scriptures read and then hear a God talk. Uh, Christianity is not just about doing religious activities. Christianity is not simply a list of religious principles. At its core, Christianity is centered in a person, the king. And that king is waiting for you to let him in your heart. Will you do that this Christmas? Will you? Well, then Advent, there's a third dimension. And we sang of that just moments ago, didn't we? In the Revelation song. The first coming of Christ, the coming of the king in Bethlehem, the coming of king in my heart. And then Advent speaks to the second coming, the second Advent, where this king who came as a humble peasant king in Bethlehem, this king who arrived in Jerusalem the week before his death on a humble beast of burden, this king will return again, not on a humble beast of burden, but on a war horse. He will come and he will subjugate the heavens and the earth. And he will remake all of creation in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will receive new bodies. I want a new body, don't you? This is the king. This is the one that we worship in Advent. And we, so we wait. We wait in eager anticipation. And in a sense... Our entire lives are Advent as we expect and wait in readiness, in readiness for the King to come. Now, those of you who are in the emergency services vocation, you understand best, I think, what this means. If you are among our firefighters, our our emergency room uh, personnel, uh, paramedics, you know what it means to wait in readiness, to wait in expectation, and to wait in preparation. And so that's what Advent challenges us toward, to wait in expectation, to wait in readiness. For what? For what? Oh, for the most important message that we can hear. The, the message that we heard in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. You, you bring good tidings to Jerusalem. Lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Some of your versions say, behold your God. You see, the most important message of Advent The most important proclamation that needs to be said and needs to be heard is this message. Look, it's God. That's Advent. That's the message of Advent. And I tell you, it is a message, an urgent, critical message of hope. Of hope. And I want you to see in Isaiah chapter 40, That Advent, this message, look, it's God. It's a a message of hope for the people of God. It's a message of hope about the Son of God. It's a message of hope for a world that is loved by God. That's where we're going this morning. I want you to first see how this message of Advent 
look, it's God, is a message of hope for the people of God. And, and not just for the people of God, for the hopeless people of God. We can see that in verse 1 of Isaiah 40, can't we? Where Isaiah says to us, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Now, why are God's people hopeless? Why do they need comfort? Why why do they need to be spoken to tenderly? What is that about? Well, there's a story. There's a story behind Isaiah 40, verse 1. And and, and here's here's the short story of Isaiah 40, verse 1. God had said to his people, If you will treasure me most, if you will put me first, I will protect you, I will love you, I will defend you, I will shepherd you. You you won't need what the other pagan nations need because I am your provision. And if you will put me first, I will take care of you. If you do not put me first, you will be the laughingstock of the nations. And so the history of God's people was a history of pursuing God, pursuing the giver, but more so it was pursuing the gifts, putting stuff first, wanting to be thought of highly by the nations instead of being esteemed by God. And unfortunately, that was the main story in the history of God's people. And we can see that by just we just see a we just see a snapshot of that by just just backing up to Isaiah chapter 39. Isaiah chapter 39 tells us what happened just before God's people were taken into exile by the Babylonian empire. King Hezekiah in Isaiah 39 had just recovered from what he thought would be a terminal illness. It was a miraculous recovery. And in Isaiah chapter 39, King Hezekiah uh, had some guests arrive from Babylon. He welcomed them gladly. Instead of being wise about their intentions, instead of being shrewd about these Babylonian representatives, he gets cocky and he tried to impress them with his stuff. So he did what us guys do. He took the delegates to the man cave showed him his man cave stuff. When he went to the man cave, he uttered those three immortal words that we hear in America. Very important words. Yeah. Move that bus. Move that bus. Yeah, yeah. We heard those words in our territory, haven't we? That was fun. There's a dark side to those words. Isaiah 39 shows us the dark side. Move that bus. And Isaiah 39, verse 2 says that Hezekiah received those envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, 
the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Move that bus. And they saw the man cave. And then they left. And then Isaiah showed up, had some questions for the king. Who were these guys? Oh, they were friends from Babylon. What did they want? Oh, they wanted, they wanted to give me a Hallmark card because I had gotten better. What did you show them? Everything. Everything? Did you show them the word of God? Did you show them the worship of God? Did you show them the temple of God? What did you show them? Well, I didn't show them that, but I showed them the man cave. I showed them all of our stuff. Isaiah, how foolish. You think they were here to give you a get well card? How they're spies. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Verse 5, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, they, who will be born to you, they'll be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of and you know what Hezekiah said after that? You know what he said? He said, whatever. Verse 8. The word of the Lord you've spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, because he thought there would be peace and security in my lifetime. It won't bother me any. He was a good king. That's how bad it was. You had a good, good king saying that. The, the end is near. And the end, and the end did come, you see. The end did come because in a later generation, that's exactly what happened. The Babylonian Empire came. And ancient history tells us that Israel, that, that God's people, the Jews, were carted off to Babylon for 70 years. 70 years. They were displaced. Fast forward to Isaiah chapter 40, you see. Now, comfort Comfort my people. Did you hear what's going on here? Isaiah predicted the return of God's people from exile before they were even taken into exile. Furthermore, Isaiah predicted the emotional and spiritual and psychological state of God's people as they were preparing the end of their exile. Comfort, comfort my, my people says your God. Even though, has God left us? Has God abandoned us? No, you are still my people. You're st- speak tenderly, literally, speak to the heart. Speak to the heart. For her hard service, what's that? That's the 70 years of exile I was telling you about. Her hard service has been completed, you see. You see, God's people needed hope, and why? Because they bet on the wrong horse. They had placed their lot with the wrong God. And now they had built this altar to this alternative God. And that altar became an anvil upon which their lives and hearts 
were crushed, and God wanted his people to know that he had not abandoned them. You know, are we that different? Are we? You know, there, there's, a, there, there's a part of us in this story too, don't you think? There is. There is. We, we get focused on the gift instead of the giver, on the possessions instead of the one who possesses all things. And, and there's a dark side of us that stands in front of that bus and all of our hopes and all of our dreams and all of our desires are behind that bus and we want to say, move that bus. And, and, and you see in our dreams and our thoughts and our goals, why, why, my goodness, behind that bus there's something as beautiful as a Kentucky plantation. But I'll tell you what, when the bus moves, the truth hits us in the face. There's the promise, and then there's the reality. Uh, now, now you know why I can never go back to Oklahoma. <laughs> Question. What's your Babylon? What's your Babylon? Advent is an excellent season to ask the question, what power is holding you in its grip? What is it? Is it, is it a vice? Is it jealousy? Is it anger? Is it lack of forgiveness? What is it? Is it a possession? Is it stuff? Is it that person? That relationship? If, if, you know, if, if only my child could have this job, if only my child could have this education, if only my child would have this grades. I mean, isn't it easy for that to become an altar upon which we want to sacrifice everything, but the altar then becomes an anvil because anything other than God, be, the altar becomes an anvil and our hearts are crushed. Paul David Tripp who is a pastor and author, put it this way. He asks, what's your one thing? What, what's the one thing that your heart craves that you think would change your life? What's the one thing that you look to for satisfaction, contentment, or peace? What's the one thing that you mourn having to live without? What's the one thing that fills your daydreams and commands your sleepy meditations in every situation and in every relationship of your everyday life? There is a one thing war that's being fought and the battlefield is your heart. And if your one thing isn't, isn't look, it's God, the creator, almighty maker of heaven and earth, I'm telling you, if you settle for a puny alternative God, whatever that altar is that you're building will become an anvil that will crush you as it crushed God's people. And you say, you say, well, that's my life. Now what? Oh, now what, friends, is, look, it's God. Look, it's God. You see, you see this, is, this is not just a message of hope for the hopeless. This is a message of hope about the Son of God. You see, in our hopelessness, God shows up. 
Look at verse 3. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. We've heard that before. What does that mean? Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. What is all that about? Here's what it's about. Uh, People who read that when Isaiah first wrote it, that's royal talk going on here. That's the language of royalty because in the ancient world, when the emperor went to visit a a part of the empire, when, when a ruler went to see a section of the realm that had not been visited before or when a king went to visit the kingdom, you know, why, they just didn't take any old road. They had, they had a road built for the king. It was the king's highway, you know? They, 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 wouldn't take, they wouldn't just take Route 10 from the capital. They had 72 built. That's what, that's what this is. And, and the king's highway is a powerful symbol of what it means to be king and what it means to be emperor. Because when the, when the king has a highway built to that section of the empire, that, especially what that empire was before the king got there, wilderness, a desert. See, before it was uninhabitable, before there were valleys, Ancient kings would have bridges built over those valleys. But this is a different kind of king, isn't it? Because when this king comes, it's not just a bridge built over a valley. The entire valley goes away. In the ancient world, when a king went to a section of the empire, you know, they kind of made a road around the mountain. But when this king arrives, when this king shows up, The mountain completely disappears. Colorado becomes as Champaign County. Now that's a king, you see. That's a king. And this is the king that's... Do you hear what Isaiah is saying? Isaiah is saying in no uncertain terms that this world is a wilderness. There's death and there's disease, and there's brokenness, and there's evil, and why? Because we're not very good leaders, that's why. We're not. But when the king comes from outside the wilderness, that's when there will be ultimate healing, and that's when the savage, untamed, uninhabitable wilderness will become a safe community. It's so safe Why, you can raise kids there. The kids can play outside without any danger. There's no panic. There's no frantic. Why? Because the king provides the peace that passes understanding. This amazing, indescribable God provides security and safety. This amazing God about whom Isaiah describes in verse 13, he needs no consultant. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Who instructed him as a counselor? The Lord God does not learn anything because he already knows everything. And and we worry and 
Uh, we are frantic in the wilderness of our world because we wonder, okay, what's going on with this North Korea thing? And when's China going to step up? And, and, when, and, and what's, what's our response going to be? And how's the economy going to turn out? And, 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 and we worry and frantic, but not our God. He never bites his nails. Verse 15 says, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. <laughs> they are regarded as dust on the scales. They're not, even a, they're not even a tiny weight on the scales. They're just regarded as dust before this almighty. Before him, verse 17, all the nations are as nothing. That, that, says, that doesn't say anything about the nations. It says everything about God. And in verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One. He is all-powerful. He is all-wise. He is all-knowing. He is the incomparable God who comes to make the inhabitable habitable and to make the savage a place of peace. And who is this king? The New Testament tells us. If you go to the New Testament, you you can see very clearly in the New Testament that the incomparable God of Isaiah 40 is identified as Jesus of Nazareth, about whom John the Baptist would say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Oh my goodness. Jesus. Jesus, who commanded the winds and waves who exercised his authority over creation, turning water into wine. This Jesus, the the God of Isaiah chapter 40, is the God of whom the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is Jesus. That's why when Jesus stood before the very representative of Caesar in John 18 and 19, it wasn't Jesus who was frantic and pacing and panicky. It was Pontius Pilate. You go back to John 18 and 19, and you read who is the one who's moving about in and out, in, in to G, with Jesus, out with the crowds. It's Pontius Pilate. Who's really on trial? Jesus or Rome? You see. And yet this same Jesus who said, all authority is given to me, is the same Jesus who said, I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He's the warrior king and He's the gentle shepherd. That's that's why verse 11 says he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he uses his power, the power of verse 10, to hold, to hold his precious treasure. For Christmas... What do you get the God who has everything? What would make God feel so wealthy? What is it? 
It's us. It's us, don't you see? That, that's why verse 10 says, see, his reward is with him. What's his reward? No, it's not what's his reward. It's who's his reward. This verse does not say, now if you obey, God will give you a reward. No, no, no. His reward. We are his reward. We are his recompense. Reward and recompense in verse 10 equate to flock and lambs in verse 11. That doesn't say anything about us. It says everything about, look, it's God. It's God. And, and, and how is this made possible? Oh, verse 2 tells us. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Double payment for all her sins. Oh, please get this. Please get this. This is the message of hope. The message of hope is, look, it's God. And the message of hope is, is that we have received double payment. Double payment. Jesus' death on the cross was double, double retail payment. I like what Ben Witherington, a professor and scholar, wrote. On Black Friday, the best possible outcome is finding bargains. On Good Friday, the best possible outcome is finding salvation to be free of charge. On Black Friday, you have to go sniff out the deals. On Good Friday, the hound of heaven came looking for you. On Black Friday, satisfaction comes from realizing how little you had to pay. On Good Friday, satisfaction comes by Jesus paying it all. In the ultimate paradox, salvation is both free and extremely expensive. Don't you see? Double payment means that we not only have been pardoned of our sin, but we have been adopted into God's family. And so many of us just stop here at the pardon. We, we, we just think that through Jesus, God has come and opened the door and kind of said to us, okay, you're on your own now. But that's not the gospel. That's not good news. It's not just good news that, okay, now we're back to, to, to zero. What's What's the gospel? What's hope? What's advent is that we are not only pardoned, but we are adopted, where God not only comes to us and opens the door from the outside, but then he, in his shepherdly arms, comes and wraps us and says, I want you to come home, and I want you to have my last name. You can have my last name, you see. You see? And some people say, well, yeah but, but, yeah, but don't you have to obey? Listen, if you don't know that you are totally accepted by the warrior, king, gentle, shepherd, if you don't know that you are totally accepted, you can't obey. You can't. Obedience driven by fear is not obedience. You're just trying to use God. You're just trying to manipulate God. You're just trying to leverage God. No, no, no. No, the gospel is not, if I obey, God will love me. The gospel is, look, it's God, and because he loves me, I can obey. Friends, that's hope. Do you have that? Do you want that? Advent, look, God has come. It's a message of hope for hopeless people. It is a message of hope 
about the Son of God. And then, lastly, and you've got to get this, you've got to get this, look, it's God is a message of hope about about the Son of God by the people of God for a world that's loved by God. You see, Isaiah chapter 40 is about God the Father, who is the source of all, who sent his son in Jesus, the warrior king, the gentle shepherd. And Isaiah infers the work of God the Holy Spirit, what God wants to do to this world by his spirit through his people. That's why in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus met with his disciples in Galilee, you know, he didn't say to them, hey guys, I know you've been through a lot. I know. I mean, you saw me tortured to death and buried and now I'm alive and some of you are kind of confused. Listen, let's go on a little retreat and get this worked out and you'll feel better. He didn't say that. He said, all authority has been given to me. Now go, make disciples. There's work to do. And Isaiah 40 is this message of hope where God the Holy Spirit Our life, the very spirit of Christ, the creator spirit who proceeds from father and son, that spirit who is our light and our life, that spirit who energizes us not just for Sunday worship or for prayer or for Bible study, but also for the transformation of a world that he loves, which is why Jesus said to his people, you let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Isaiah challenges us. Isaiah challenges Windsor Road Christian Church to be the people of comfort for the world. We are the ones with the message, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. We are the one, a voice says, cry out. Literally, a voice says, preach. And we say, what do you want us to preach about, Lord? And the Lord says, you preach that this, the kingdoms of earth are like grass. And their, their glory is like a daffodil in spring. Seven days and it's gone. But my word stands forever. See, that's the message that God wants us to bring to this world. Because this world is in exile. This world is a wilderness. And we've got so much riches in poverty. We do. We've got everything except the one thing. We're so muddled and confused about morality and politics and finance and the economy and many people in despair. People who need to hear the message of comfort. How can we be the people through whom the living God comes to those in need. Do do you understand now why it's important that we participate in Operation Christmas Child? Do you get that now? Do Do you understand now why we are partnering with Salt and Light with the Christmas gift giveaway? To be salt and light, to, 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 to say and speak a message of comfort. Comfort. And 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 to what end? To what end? Oh, my. So that the king would be so in control of our hearts that what Isaiah says in chapter 40, verse 31, would be true of our lives. Those who wait. Advent is about waiting. Those who wait. Those who hope in the Lord 
will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. You see. These verses don't end as we think they should, do they? Because, you know, a motivational speaker in America would say this, trust in the Lord and you'll not only walk, you'll not only run, you'll soar. Not here. (laughs) No, it's just the opposite. You see, see the, the point isn't soaring, the point is walking, enduring. Walking is the pinnacle, and why? Because you know the king. And when you know the king, there's no reason to panic. And if you know anything about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know that he knew the king. While he waited for his prison door to open, actually his prison door was not opened, at least not in this life, less than three weeks before Hitler's own death and ten days before the Nazis began to surrender to the Allies. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed, 39 years of age. But he knew the king. He had the message of Advent in his heart. Look, it's God. And that's why he said, before he was led away to his execution, to one of his fellow prisoners, that's why he said, This is the end, but for me, it's the beginning of life.